The plan will be repeal and replace Obamacare. We're going to have a health care that is far less expensive and far better. President Trump has made a lot of promises about health care. So can he actually come through on these health care promises? Who's affected most if he does? And what's at stake if he doesn't? I'm Allison Michaels, and this is Can He Do That? And with me this week is congressional reporter Mike DeBonis. Mike and I talked to some experts on this, including Republican Senator Bill Cassidy, who we'll get to later in the show. But in the meantime, Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Allison. Great to be here. So the GOP's health care plan, which is called the American Health Care Act, it's faced significant hurdles from within the Republican Party. So the bill itself addresses GOP concerns around Medicaid. It removes the individual mandate, which is the requirement that Americans purchase health care that exists under Obamacare. But conservatives don't think the plan does enough to undo the Affordable Care Act, namely in the area of essential benefits. So essential benefits are things like maternity care or preventative screenings for things like cancer. And moderates, meanwhile, worry that it will harm their constituents or the party's chances at re-election. Given all of that, all week, Republican leaders and the Trump administration have been trying to move very quickly to bring a vote to the House floor. Now, that vote was supposed to happen on Thursday, but after much contention, it never made it to the House floor. Okay, Mike, so back to you. How do these things actually play out in people's lives? Sure. A lot depends on who you are, how old you are, and how much money you make. If you're a relatively young or middle-aged person, you have a good job with a good salary. The Republican plan, it either isn't going to affect you very much, particularly if you get your insurance through your employer. And if you don't, uh, this actually may be an improvement for you. It may mean lower premiums on your health plan, um, perhaps even lower out-of-pocket costs. Uh, The situation changes pretty dramatically, though, under the current version of the bill. If you're older, uh, if you're if you're low income and you, and right now you're uh, on the, one of the exchanges created by the Affordable Care Act and getting a subsidy, there's a pretty good chance that you know, the assistance that you would get under the Republican plan would be considerably less, and there's a pretty good chance that your premiums could go up, particularly particularly if you're older. So the Congressional Budget Office has said that 24 million people could potentially lose insurance under this plan. Who are those people? There's a bunch of different groups. One group are people who are young and healthy and simply don't feel the need to buy insurance and wouldn't buy insurance because they wouldn't be forced to under the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act. But there's also a group that could be very, there's a very real possibility that they could be priced out of the health market. And that's Like I said, older folks, particularly folks between 50 and 64, at 65, of course, you become eligible for Medicare. But that that group there uh, really stands to see some significant changes under the plan. So just to zoom out from this particular plan for a little bit, a lot of us have been hearing about this healthcare debate for decades for some people. Why is it that this particular issue is so contentious in American politics? Well, you really get down to very basic philosophical and ideological differences between the parties. Um, You're talking about the role of government. You're talking about the proper level of taxation. You're talking about uh, whether the government should be able to uh, force you to buy insurance. You know, these are big issues. These are not little small issues that can be papered over easily uh, between Republicans and Democrats. And uh, you're talking about people's well-being. And uh, it's obviously a very divisive and very uh, heartfelt issue. And there there are just a, a whole lot of members of Congress 
House and Senate, Republican, Democrat, who do not see this as an issue of compromise. Given how contentious this has been in American politics, I wanted to learn a little bit about how we got here. So I spoke to Melissa Thomason. Now, Melissa is the Julian Lang Professor of Economics, and she's the Director of Graduate Studies at Miami University. And she spoke to us all the way from her vacation in Italy. So feel free to just listen to this next part with maybe a side of pasta or a bottle of wine or maybe just the wine. Here's Melissa. In 1919 or 1920, there wasn't much need for health insurance because medical expenses were low. But as the 20s progressed, people found that they started having higher health care expenses, and hospitals noticed some people wouldn't pay bills. So Baylor University Hospital contracted with a group of teachers in Dallas, and they agreed to provide three weeks of hospital care for an annual fee of $6. And it was kind of the precursor to the modern Blue Cross plans. And those plans became even more popular in the 1930s when hospitals saw their revenues fall during the Great Depression. Just at the start of World War II, 9% of Americans have some sort of health insurance coverage. But as inflation happens during the war, the government makes a law, passes a law that says that no one can raise prices or wages. So at a time when unemployment is actually below 2% and workers are scarce, the government makes it illegal to give them wage increases an attempt to get them to work for you. And so more firms turn to fringe benefit packages such as health insurance and retirement plans. You mentioned the 9% of people who actually had health insurance. How did they get that health insurance? Where were they obtaining health insurance if not through their employers? Or was that only through their employers at that point? So at that point, even the Blue Cross plans were really reluctant to insure individuals. Insurance companies don't want to insure individuals who might be sick because they will lose money on them. And so the way that Blue Cross succeeded was that they provided insurance to groups of workers. So people were healthy enough to work and they really didn't need health insurance and so Blue Cross didn't make losses. And so those 9% of people in 1940 were roughly Blue Cross subscribers and through the workplace. There was very little individual insurance at that time. Okay, so then to further incentivize employers, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at some point tax laws were set and those really solidified the system, right? Right, so the first ruling we see under that is Uh, ruling in 1943 by an administrative tax court. And it basically says that if employers contribute to group employee health insurance plan premiums, those contributions are not considered taxable income to employees. And so that ruling was very restrictive in in the 1940s, but it's enacted into law in the 1950s. And, you know, that did actually increase both the number of employers who wanted to offer insurance as well as the amount of insurance that people would buy. When did programs start to come into place, like we recognize today, Medicare and Medicaid? When did we first see those? All through the 40s and the 50s, there were attempts to have some sort of national health insurance coverage because certain individuals were always at risk for not having insurance, namely people who were unable to work or who couldn't work. So aged and retired people or disabled people or very poor people who might have been you know, down on their luck and out of a job, were unable to have health insurance. And none of those efforts by presidents ranging, you know, from Truman to Eisenhower go anywhere until the 1960s when Lyndon Johnson is able to enact Medicare in 1965 and then the states come in with with Medicaid after that. Can you speak a little bit more about the origin of the philosophy of an employer-funded health care system in this country and speak maybe a little bit about how it's different from other countries? I mentioned that um, insurance companies really don't want to insure people who come to them 
on their own for insurance. So you can imagine that if you insure people who are only at risk for being sick, there's no way to really spread expenses over the entire population. And that's what insurance is really meant to do, is to kind of combine high-risk and low-risk people. Most other countries have done this through a national health insurance program, and Britain early on, Canada, of course, later. And the U.S. had always had entrenched interest groups that really opposed national health insurance. Physicians were really opposed. Insurance companies were really opposed. And so that never developed here. And the employment-based system worked to cover about 70% of people. But those people, if you didn't have a job, you wouldn't be able to get insurance. Have there been a lot of attempts to provide some form of government-funded health care in America? Obviously, Obamacare is the most recent example, but have, have there been attempts by previous presidents? Well, President Clinton, of course, um, tried to implement a national form of health insurance under, you know, what they called Clinton Care, which was uh, what they called managed competition. So that was, it was yet another attempt. It seemed very bureaucratic. And again, strong opposition from insurance companies. What made the Affordable Care Act more palatable is that for the first time, average people were seeing just very large cost increases in their plans. We saw the advent of high deductible health care plans. Premium increases were still continuing to rise. And I think even physicians were finally, you know, physicians actually came out in support of the Affordable Care Act, which is the first time in the history of health care reform that physicians have ever supported something like this. So, Mike, Melissa and I touched a little bit on how we got to this point in history, but can you remind everyone how Obama managed to pass Obamacare? What did that fight look like? Sure. I mean, it unfolded over the course of the better part of a year. It, it took more than a year after he was inaugurated for him to sign the bills. For a good part of that time, between his inauguration into the summer of 2009, he really was trying to convince Republicans to get on board with this plan. It wasn't until August of 2009 where it became clear that the Republicans just weren't going to come along on this and that Democrats would have to go it alone. But they ended up at the end of the day, it took until March of 2010, passing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they did it in, in a really uh, in, in stages and it, it took a lot of negotiations and uh, within the Democratic Party among Democrats. And it took some procedural maneuvers, but they got it done 13 months after uh, President Obama was inaugurated. So do you think we're looking at a similar timeline to try and repeal it? What's different about the makeup of Congress now that might contribute to an easier process, a harder process? Well, this is certainly a faster timeline than Obamacare, without a doubt. This has moved a lot faster in part because Republicans have not made any pretense about trying to do this with Democrats. They're basically trying to convince members of their own party to support this bill. But they've also gone through a very rapid drafting process in, in trying to come up with a bill that they believe can pass. They are drawing on, you know, seven years of ideas that they've batted around about how to fix Obamacare, how to replace it. Uh, but this is the first time that they've really put it all in one bill, tried to make it all work together, estimated, gotten the nonpartisan congressional budget office to estimate the costs and estimate the effects it's going to have on American health care. And they're moving at a very fast pace to try and get this done really within the next few weeks. As of Friday morning, the bill has not yet hit the House floor. What happens next? Well, this is really put up or shut up time for House Speaker Paul Ryan. It's put up or shut up time for President Trump. They need to find a way to get a majority of House members to support this bill. Um, they have have raised the stakes on this to 
really high level saying that, you know, the rest of the president's agenda depends on passing this bill. Um, this is they are already behind schedule. They wanted this bill through the House and uh, onto the Senate by Thursday. Uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, we're waiting to see what the next moves are going to be. So we've talked a lot here about what the House is doing to move this plan forward, what the House bill looks like. But as we all know, when a bill moves from the House, it goes on to the Senate. So what's happening on the Senate side? To figure that out, we talked to Senator Bill Cassidy, a Republican senator from Louisiana. The the person who ran most recently and most nationally was obviously President Trump. And he ran saying that he he wanted it all covered caring for those with pre-existing conditions without mandates at a lower cost. And when you look at lower cost, I don't think the average American viewed that as a CBO score. They viewed that as a lower premium. I'm not sure the House plan, as I last read, and it's a moving target, achieved, well, there's no mandates. But the other three, it does not appear to achieve. So again, clearly the American people want what Donald Trump promised. I would hope that whatever finally is passed out of Congress fulfills President Trump's plan in a fiscally conservative way that lowers premiums. Senator Cassidy, tell me about your own plan that you've put together with Senator Collins and you have the support of several other senators. Uh, what does that plan accomplish to you? And you can just talk about how it differs from the House plan. Well, a couple things. I think, again, that we have to fulfill President Trump's pledge in a fiscally conservative manner that lowers premiums. And I am basing what I, our plan, if you will, but my response upon my experience as a physician. My experience as a physician is that as long as the emergency room door is open, you are going to receive folks with diabetes, out of control, high blood pressure, COPD, asthma, heart failure, drug overdoses, schizophrenics, you name it. They're going to come through those doors as long as they are open. And society is going to pay. So in our plan, we basically allow states to extend coverage to those who are currently in the Medicaid expansion population and would be in the individual market. You can combine those two. By combining them, you're taking these healthy folks and you are wrapping the sick folks around with the healthy folks. So now you're spreading the cost of illness over many as opposed to just a few. That lowers premiums. It lowers premiums. It saves society money as well. But there are some folks in the House and even here in the Senate who, who look at your plan and they, and they see a plan that, that to them looks uh, too much like the Affordable Care Act, that it, it, does, uh, it, had, it maintains too robust of a government role in health care. What do you say to them? And I, th- I think you were sort of getting at it when you talked about the, the socialized costs of, of not covering people. But what do these people not, uh, the, who, who criticize your plan not understand about the health care system? Uh, put it this way. Folks can be conservative, but on a particular issue, not have a conservative position. Congress has said, previous Congresses, every American can get health care. Every American can. Now the question is, are we going to manage it in a fiscally conservative way, like a cost center, if you will, okay, we're going to take care of you in the lowest cost setting, or are we just going to start writing checks? It is fiscally conservative to manage that cost. It is what every Fortune 500 company does. The federal government does not. Now, by the way, folks who accuse our bill of being too much like status quo, I think that is so totally non-conservative. What we are saying, states have the option. The 10th Amendment says the state can do this. 
Now you want your particular vision to be imposed upon the states. That is not conservative. That is what liberals do. And that is the chief, cons- the chief criticism of Obamacare. We say, states, you can do what you want. We just want folks to be covered. That's the conservative position. Well, let's talk about one particular issue that, that's being discussed right now. That's the uh, essential health benefit mandates that were created under the Affordable Care Act. These are a, a, a number of areas of health care that the, that the ACA mandated that insurers have to cover. That ranges from, obviously, hospital visits and ambulance rides to mental health care, substance abuse, uh, lab tests, maternity. There's a group in the House that really want to see those requirements removed. I know that your plan would keep at least some of the requirements, uh, perhaps not all of them. How important is, are, is it to address essential health benefit mandates? And do, do you think that that has to be a part of uh, health care reform? The American people want lower premiums, and they understand Obamacare has driven them up by, another, by among other mechanisms, the essential health benefit package. So in what Susan Collins and I have proposed, we do away with those, except for the coverage for addiction and serious mental illness. Because we think that's when someone is least able to make a rational decision when they most need help is those two conditions. And believe me, society will pay if we don't treat. But what we also do in our bill, which is not done in the House, is that we pre-fund health savings accounts. So someone doesn't need coverage for a colonoscopy mandated by law if they have a pre-funded health savings account, which over time, because you only need a screening colonoscopy every 10 years, which over time you could accumulate and pay for your screening colonoscopy. So I don't think we need essential health benefits, but lower income Americans do need a little bit of help. Uh, if you're making $16,000 a year, you're not saving for your colonoscopy. They need a little bit of help putting money aside in order to pay for it when they need it. Looking at the way that the House has approached this bill, I believe I saw a quote where you, you were uh, fairly critical of really the, uh, the the politics behind this and uh, what it would mean for, for the party and for for individual lawmakers to, to, to vote for this plan and support this plan. When you, when you look at the, the direction that it has been headed, do you see this as a matter of bad policy, as bad politics, or as both? I, I am a firm believer that good policy is good politics, and the opposite is true. Obamacare was bad policy. It's been terrible politics for Democrats. If we get this right, it will be wonderful politics. And as a physician, that is what's most important to me, that someone making $16,000 a year with diabetes who voted for President Trump believing that President Trump would make sure they had coverage, but better than that than under Obamacare. If we fulfill that promise, then that patient will be healthier. That'll be great policy. And just as an aside, it'll be great politics. Uh, You do the right thing, good things happen. That's That's the kind of lessons that we know to be true in life. And as political reality, do you think a, a, a bill of good policy and good politics can pass the United States Congress at this point in time? Um, um, I always choose to be optimistic. Nothing is ever accomplished by a cynic. So I'll continue to push for good policy, hoping that folks recognize that good policy is good politics. So if you're somebody who voted for Donald Trump, whose insurance expenses go up and you 
you know, you're angry about it and you want to blame someone, who do you blame? Do you blame the the entire Republican Party? Do you blame Paul Ryan? Do you blame Donald Trump? Who do you hold accountable for that? Well, all of those parties you just mentioned have have a role in this and had a role in this. Um, Donald Trump, you know, famously promised to our own Robert Costa that there would be insurance for everybody. Um, he said it would be a terrific plan, but he also has gone uh, to great lengths to criticize the, the all of the the premium increases that have been seen under Obamacare on the exchanges and uh, some of the, the the less popular parts of that law. And they did get rid of parts of the, the the unpopular parts of that law. The the individual mandate to buy insurance not popular. People who don't want insurance don't want to have to buy it. They're rolling back some of the the mandates on insurers. But by and large, uh, you know what they've done. You know, there's going to be some serious losers in the, in the population. And as as people are fond of saying right now, they're they're going to own this. You can't just hide that under the couch cushions. Uh, people's lives are going to be affected. That's going to be because of Trump care or Ryan care or Republican care or wh- whatever people are going to call it. And you, you better believe that Democrats are ready to run on this in 2018 and beyond. So before we even get to that point, this has to go through Congress. And part of this is, has been a negotiation with President Trump. And he's he's billed himself as negotiator in chief. This is one of his greatest strengths. Have we seen that play out in real time? And if he fails, is he going to be measured as somebody who doesn't have the great negotiating skills he claims? We have seen it. I mean, he has been dragging people, members of Congress, down to the White House, trying to get them to yes. He is doing using all of the trappings of his office, sitting people down in the Oval, saying, are you with me or are you against me, asking what, what he can do to help them. And in some ways, it's been successful, and he, he has won over votes. But um, as we sit right now, yeah, he, hasn't, you know, he hasn't won over enough. And uh, I think it is a serious test of whether he is the, the great deal maker, the, the closer that he, he, he says he is. And uh, if he can't convince you know, members of his own party, the guys who are opposed to this bill, who are hard right Republicans, by and large supported Donald Trump and they like what he's about, but they're not listening to him on this issue. And that's a big problem for him. So we've laid out a lot of the reasons today why it's really hard for a president to move forward on a health care plan that works for the American population, that works for the, you know, the political climate at the time. So one question we always ask at this, which I'll get to in a second, is can President Trump do what he said he is going to do? My question first is, can any president really pass a health care reform bill that pleases the majority of the population? That's a great question. I mean, obviously, we all know what happened with Obamacare. It uh, turned into an albatross around the president's neck uh, politically that he never really escaped. It emboldened uh, his conservative opposition. It allowed them to paint him as a you know, rightly or wrongly as a, you know, liberal activist radical um, that really empowered Republicans and, and not only, you know, gave them eventually gave them majorities in Congress. It sure seems sitting here that President Trump is headed down the same path with this bill. Democrats are there's a lot of ammunition in there for Democrats to say that Republicans have betrayed their promises have taken something that wasn't perfect and then made it worse. Uh, that's an argument they're already starting to make. And they believe that this is something that in 2018 they'll be able to run on and perhaps get the House back. Perhaps, you know, we get to the point where 
Democrats take their shot, Republicans take their shot. It's a big mess, and then everyone has to come together. But that would in- involve a scenario that really hasn't played out in American politics and contemporary American politics yet. So basically what I'm gathering here in my lead up to this final question, which is can he come through on the promises that he's made? Can President Trump come through on those promises? You've basically said maybe not. Uh, Can you get more specific? Uh, Can he provide insurance for everybody like you mentioned before? Can he can he come through on the idea that no one will lose coverage and that no one will be worse off financially? All things that he's specifically said. Based on the latest Congressional Budget Office analysis of the Republican plan, this is going to end up very far from that. 24 million fewer Americans with insurance in 10 years. Some of those, yes, aren't, are not are choosing not to buy insurance, but a good number of those are going to be folks priced out of the market. You've got people on Medicaid now who won't be eligible for benefits later. While there are winners, there's going to be a lot more losers based on what we know now. And while you know, the Republicans are sort of tinkering around the margins and trying to boost the uh, aid they're going to give to to older folks. Certainly, there there are people who are going to be worse off under this plan. So, Mike, I just want to throw in a bonus question here, which is you've been covering healthcare for a long time. You've been covering Congress for a long time. What do you enjoy most or what is most interesting to you about covering healthcare? That's a good question. I mean, I, I really do think it is it, it does capture all of the the most basic ideological and uh, philosophical divisions between uh, the parties and between you know individual lawmakers here, and um, it's also revealed how Congress has has changed from a, a place where deals get cut and progress is made incrementally to one where things are are you know win at all costs or take it or leave it. There's no half loafs. It sort of embodies everything about the, the 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 contemporary Congress and contemporary politics, the good and the bad. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's a lot of fun to cover and uh, see see this all play out um, in a in a in a huge piece of legislation um, that's going to affect a, a lot of a lot of people's lives. I'm so glad you find it fun, and I know our readers do as well. Uh, thank you for being here, Mike. Really appreciate it. One more thing, guys. Here's another reason that this health care bill matters so much. If this effort fails, Trump may face a much harder time achieving his other priorities, things like infrastructure, tax reform, and immigration. So a lot's at stake. But this story is changing fast, so you are going to want to go to WashingtonPost.com to stay updated this time. And you should also follow Mike DeBonis on Twitter. That's at Mike DeBonis. And follow me on Twitter at Allison Mikes. Other things you can do. One, send me an email with your story ideas. Two, tweet at me with your story ideas. Three, send us feedback. And you can do that with an iTunes review. You can do that by the other ways that I just mentioned. We're all ears. We want to hear what you guys have to say. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Can He Do That is produced by the very patient Carol Alderman. Art direction is by our design director, Rachel Orr. And we've got logo art from Loren Boglio. Thanks, guys. <laughs>